Everything was in the red. I had credit card debt. Everything was just terrible. Our business account, my personal account, everything was intermingled and mixed up. And we were a business that was two years old, maybe three years old. And we were getting the work, but we were just not able to figure out how to get that cash flow thing right. At the start of his business, Fred Rode, like most founders, did everything in the business, from sales to marketing, creative projects, customer service, and even finances. But managing finances for a young business without the appropriate skill or aptitude can leave you in dire straits. Unfortunately for Fred, this is exactly what happened with his company Worldwide Creative in the early years. Luckily, Fred had people around him who quickly helped him realize that he needed to focus on what he was good at and get the company's cash flow back on track. Fred Road is a heavy chef in the entrepreneurial space and in this episode serves Michelin star business lesson after business lesson. My name is Nick Harrell-Ambus and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to It's Not Over. With me today is a very old in age and old friend of mine that I've known for a long time. I'm just kidding, you're not that old. Fred Rode, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm good, dude. I, I still have all my hair. So like the age jokes are not, they're not going to fly very well with your audience. I don't know. <laughs> what's, you know, what's funny is I always say that because the way I phrase it sounds ambiguous. An old friend of mine. Does that mean that you are old or that we're, we've been friends for a long time? It's very confusing. So I have to figure that out. Listen, after 20 years of being in business, I, I feel fairly freaking old. So <laughs> yeah, I've got my yeah, stripes. Dude, it's a good point. For me, it's it's also 22 years since my first business started and I'm wearing it. Like, I feel like I'm wearing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get you. And, and that's a good starting point for you being on this show. So I think as with all my show, my episodes, tell us a bit about yourself. Like, what do you do now? What were you doing at the time? What business we're talking about and anything you think might be interesting and relevant? And then we'll take it from there. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, by the way, I, I love the format of the show. It's, it's, it feels almost like a, I'm, I'm going into therapy, which is great, you know? So yes. I'm, a huge fan, I'm a huge fan Thank of you. therapy and Lord knows I need it. And I think we probably will do. But yeah. Yeah. But dude, I, I think the, the, the only way to describe me would be as a, I mean, I, I would say I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm an entrepreneur now training other entrepreneurs how to be better entrepreneurs while learning how to be a better entrepreneur myself. So I'm probably in the most meta business you could possibly imagine. So currently <laughs> I run something called Heavy Chef, which is a learning platform for entrepreneurs. And as you well know, the saying comes from, or the, the name comes from the saying, never trust a skinny chef. And so the whole concept- Which is, I'm starting to embody more and more <laughs> over the years, just so you the know. The London 10, yeah. baby. That's what it's all about. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so I think, by the way, I, w- I wouldn't have said that you picked up any weight, but- Thanks. Uh, but the the concept of heavy chef is really about learning from other entrepreneurs. So, i.e., heavy chefs, people who eat their own food, so who have rolled up their sleeves and you know dug the trenches and really got stuck in, and who can speak with authority about salient topics that are relevant to other entrepreneurs. And so, we've created a platform. Amazing. It's a learning management system. You can go in there, and we literally have thousands and thousands of what we call learning bites. Those learning bites are little nuggets of knowledge. And we piece them together in what we call recipes. And we serve up fresh recipes every week based on all the various topics from starting to scaling to selling a business and pretty much everything in between. And yeah, we've had some pretty famous people on our platform. We've also had a lot of unknown individuals who are just amazing. Like yours, Judy. Like, like you, Mr. Harry Lambus, and who have done just amazing things. I would say that you're more on the celebrity side of, of things, but, uh, but we, <laughs> have, that. we do have domain experts on things like hmm. domains. <laughs> We've got like Neil yeah. Dundas, who started .africa and .co.za and all that. And you know, he talks about how to register domain names. So all the various tiny little... Hmm nuggets of knowledge that would be relevant to our community of of roughly about 40,000 entrepreneurs at the moment. So it's a huge but amount of fun. As far as I understand, 
that business has not had near-death experiences as of yet. yet. So (laughs) maybe a later episode we can talk about that. Today, I believe we're talking about one of your other businesses that you have exited. And do you want to tell us a little bit about what that business is, what it did, and how it made money? And then we can dive into the experiences. Sure. So the business we can talk about is Worldwide Creative. And it's still in existence now, but in a little bit of a different guise. When I started it with my business partner, Mike, it was 2003. And I I was CEO and creative director, actually, until 2013, where we sold it. And then I ran it as CEO until 2016. So Mike and I sold it to, to a software company called Saratoga in 2013. And then, and then we, we had, fortunately, I think the timing was really great and we had a really good exit. And then I resigned at, in 2016. So, so yeah, but it clearly, I mean, obviously the reason why we're chatting is that it wasn't just a smooth ride. There were a few bumpy bits and uh, some rough potholes that we had to navigate. Okay, so before we dive directly into the near-death experience itself, how did Worldwide Creative make most of its money? Traditional ad agency model, uh, retainers, projects, what was your core work? So I think what we did was essentially the digital side of marketing. So uh, it was a digital marketing agency and um, it was all about initiating and maintaining profitable relationships with, with customers for our clients. And so essentially what we did, kind of the stuff that most marketing agencies didn't want to do, this under the bonnet kind of very technical digital stuff like, you know, SEO, banner ads, big campaigns using social media, you know, a lot of the the kind of algorithmic stuff. We also did quite a bit of Mm. development. So we, we had a big team of developers. We did like app development, middleware. We did big e-commerce sites. You know, we created platforms for Hyundai Global. We did stuff for Vodafone, the Fashini Group across all their brands. We did stuff for F&B, R&B, uh, Mixed Telematics, a whole bunch of listed companies internationally. And we worked in 17 countries across Africa. So there, there was a lot of work. But it was not really the kind of glitzy, glamorous campaign creative stuff. Although we did do some cool stuff, but that was more like shopfront kind of thing. And that wasn't really, a, I mean, to answer your question, how we made money and, and the kind of operational side, we, we made money by the big retainers to those agencies who had marketing budgets okay. to spend. Okay. And uh, at its peak, how many staff... How big was the business? I mean, any numbers you're comfortable sharing? Obviously, sure. whatever you don't want to share, I don't care. But share what's useful so that we can get a picture of, like, was this a one-person company? Or by the sounds of things, you had a big business servicing global brands and businesses. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at our peak was around about 2014, 2013. We had 65, 70 full-time employees. We had probably another, like, 35 40 part-timers, contractors, you know, people scattered across Africa, people on the ground and so on. So, I mean, I think at the, we were about 110 or so people that when, when we were really kind of thumping and, and then when I left, actually, it was at a time when we were having a little bit of a existential crisis and we decided to pivot or at least Mike took over as CEO and he pivoted it more into an advisory service. So we kind of went to layer up and then started outsourcing all the, the, the work to subcontractors, which was, I mean, Mike is a smart dude. I think you, as you know, Nick, and he, he started systematizing everything. And, um, and that was just a totally different model. So that's, that's actually when I left and I took a year off to consider my next, my next venture. Cool. Okay. So at the time of this near-death experience, what year are we in? Is the business profitable? Yes, up for what's going on prior to that and how we get into this problem. So Okay. So I knew you were going to ask this question. Obviously, you briefed me beforehand. And I think as with probably most of the individuals that you have on this show, I think it's quite mm-hmm. a difficult question because not because it's a vulnerable question or anything like that, but because there are so freaking many of those near-death experiences yeah. to choose from, right? So I probably yeah. have like three or four or five 
where I could refer to two two of which were were really significant and and one of which cool let's cover them both man I'm happy to cover them both we can talk about both I mean I think the one which is probably the most the most interesting is because it involves a couple of semi-famous people that you know and 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 it it has a a love a bit of spice to a near-death story let's do it (laughs) and it has a it has a it has a i think a very solid lesson certainly it had for me so i think in the early days of any business you know i mean it's it's really tough to to get a business going particularly a service business which we were worldwide creative digital marketing agency in the beginning early days we were building websites and we were doing digital marketing so anything to do with kind of you know getting a presence online and then driving traffic to it so in about 2004-2005 I mean we were just it was just rats and mice like we had little tiny bits of work coming in and not a lot of consistent deal flow nothing really of significance and I was I was at my wits end so I had a young family back then and we had about four or five people coming through. And in that time, it was, I mean, it was, I mean, I, I can only say that it's a blur because it was just so hard to manage that that work-life kind of, you know, that 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 balance, which which is just non-existent for most startup entrepreneurs. And and for me, it was really about trying to just pay the bills at home, but then also trying to play, pay salaries. And, and, and Mike and I were just, you know, we were at our wits end. We were just, we had, I mean, we knew that we were on uptick because we could see the, you know, the, the world of digital really starting to pick up. And we could see some of the other agencies. I mean, like, I know you've had quick Rob Stokes's uh, story on, on your show. I mean, he, he at that stage was really starting to hit his straps. And, you know, some of those agencies, those early days agencies were really starting to, to kick off. We had presence. In Cape Town, who's just doing so well. There was Aqua online and, you know, a bunch of trigger, like the early days OGs of digital in South Africa. Mm. And so we knew there was something there, you know, and it was such a small pool and we already had some traction. So, but here's the thing. I was doing, I was doing pretty much everything in South Africa. Mike was trying to sell to overseas clients. So he was spending a lot of time in the UK. And my life was involved really in terms of handling the work. So I was in charge of the studio, two or three people here, and then Mike was doing all the kind of logistic, I mean, the, the communicative stuff to clients overseas. And and we had two two individuals who were helping us as, as subcontractors at that stage as well, whose names are Andrew Smith and Shane Dryden. So, and it just so happened at that stage that we were all staying, or Shane and myself were staying in a, in a very small housing complex in in Harfield Village in Kenilworth. So, I mean, we just became friends and, you know, we used to have beers together. We used to discuss how flipping hard life is and just commiserate, you know. And and so it very quickly evolved into a working relationship. And Andrew was this really young and very confident programming dude. And so I said to Andrew and Shane, look, you guys need to help us. We're doing all this work, all this development stuff. So Shane was doing all the, you know, the design for us and Andrew was doing all the development. And it just very quickly devolved. I mean, I, I was the person who was the, kind of you could say creative director but I was doing everything right so I was also doing the the kind of like the the client service explaining what we were doing to the clients I was you know I was doing all the sort of operations and and I was also and this is the important bit I was doing the finances as well so back in those days I was doing the (laughs) finances on Excel, Excel spreadsheets, and we were getting. I mean, we didn't, we didn't have a shortage of work. As I said, it was rats and mice. So it was lots of little bits of work, and Shane and Andrew were working all hours to try and deliver the work to me as their their kind of contract, and 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 I was supposed to be paying them. But here's the problem: is that I was doing all our invoices and our statements in Excel. So I was doing like creative direction operations. HR, I suppose, I was doing the, the kind of client service to our clients in the UK and obviously with Mike and, and then managing the, the cash flow and trying to 
feed my family and whatnot. And so it just, I mean, eventually we just got to a point. I literally couldn't pay the bills and I could not pay Andrew and Shane. And Andrew and Shane confronted me and they were like, dudes, listen, we need to talk because we've got a, we have a challenge here. You're just loading up the work and, and we need to get paid and, and we, we've got our own families to feed and all this kind of stuff. And so I said to you, and I mean, as you know, I'm kind of an open personality. So I started telling them the challenges. I was saying, look, guys, you know, I, I'm struggling with all the workload. I'm struggling to get these statements out in time, I'm struggling to get these invoices and whatnot. So Andrew said to me, okay, well, let's have a look. Let's have a look at your, your books. Let's have a look at what's going on there. And I mean, just to give you like a little sense. I mean, when you open up my, my, my computer, it was one of those like typical things of like, I mean, just the whole desktop was like filled with kind of, you know, just debris everywhere. Icons, folders, Icons, images, folders, PDFs, desks, like notes, you name sticky it. notes and all that kind of shit, you know, and it was, <laughs> it was just a dog's breakfast. And then, a shit show. and then obviously when you, you open up, when you, I mean, when you open up my, my, you know, F and B, bank account it was even worse dude like everything was in the red i had credit card debt everything was just terrible our business account my personal account everything was intermingled and mixed up and we were a business that was like at that stage you know two years old maybe three years mm -hmm. old and we were getting the work but we were just not able to kind of figure out how to get that cash flow mm -hmm. thing right hey folks Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube. Then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, Back to the knowledge bombs. Hmm. So what kind of revenue are we talking about at this point? Like a couple of hundred thousand rand a month or yeah. a million rand a month? No, no, no. Okay. It was tiny. It was, it was a couple of hundred thousand. And we also didn't, we hadn't figured out how to charge what it was worth, right? So that was a big problem. And so I, we kind of left it at that. And we were like, okay, Andrew sort of got the fright of his life. You know, he was like, dude, this is not looking good. Like <laughs> he, he knew also, I believe that, he, you know, he like he knew he could see that the trajectory was like we were in a plane and we we're freaking clipping the trees and we we're about to like hit you know hit a big ass mountain. So I we we kind of we sort of parted ways and we you know we we decided we were going to try and have a think about. It. And the next I, I'm you know I, I struggle because it was such a long time ago to get the the exact timing right, but it was probably about a week later. And Andrew had taken my spreadsheets and all the Excel docs and whatnot. And he, 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 you know, he was doing his own books because, you know, I was subcontracting to him and his company was called Blue Box, which essentially was him. It was just him. Right. And, and he had, he was contracting Shane. And so he was using QuickBooks at that stage for, for his business. So he took all my stuff and he, he could put it into QuickBooks and basically he he realized that we probably had maybe i don't know like a month left that we could use credit cards and do whatever the hell we could to kind of eke out the last little scraps of cash that we could yeah. in order to pay them pay my employees pay myself and you know and, and whatever messy stuff that i was doing with my own like family business kind of you know expenses and whatnot and uh, I think, I mean, it was essentially what you could only call an intervention. Andrew came into, <laughs> into my office and he had his laptop and he said, right, you have to open up your laptop and I'm going to open up my laptop. And we had this one client, I'm actually not going to mention who it was because this person was, he owed us a ton of money. <laughs> and it was, it was a furniture client and it was a chain of furniture stores that we were doing their websites and a whole bunch of work. And, uh, and so we had, to, we had to collect the money for this furniture site. And he said, right, do a statement for me of all the invoices that have been, uh, not been paid and all that. So I sat there and I diligently went through Excel, you know, put all the invoices, put like the statement together. And Andrew was watching me the whole thing. And he said, listen, okay, it took me maybe, I don't know, like 
10 minutes to do this thing. And he opened his laptop and he like clicked one or two buttons. He said, right. So I just did the same work that you did. It took me like a couple of seconds and yours is wrong. <laughs> it was not just a little bit wrong. It was like way off. And he's like, it's not that it's taken you 10 minutes. It's that it's wrong at the end of no, the 10 minutes. Exactly. And he, he yeah. said to me, dude, it's, this is just terrible. Like you can't run a business like this, right? And no wonder they're not paying you because there's just so much like stuff that doesn't add up correctly. Right? Um, so I was suitably humbled. And I said to Andrew, look, dude, what do we do about it? And he, he like gingerly took my laptop and he like deleted the Excel spreadsheets, right? You are no longer doing your own books. I'm going to do it and I'm going to make sure that I get paid first. Deal? And I was like, deal. Damn Good deal. deal. And, and so I think the, I mean, just to kind of put the, the ribbon on the end of that story, right? So Shane and Andrew continued to be, the official kind of designer and developer within, but they were and doing bookkeeper. Dude, they were doing like everything, and and so so they became like I even like stopped my rent at the place. I had this really fancy studio, you know, like because you're an ad agency and you like you've got to have a fancy. And it was like, dude, you're you're cutting your rent. You've got to get out of this thing. You're getting out of the the, the lease, and you're moving in. And he had a house in Plumstead. You're moving into my lounge because he worked from home. So, so Shane and Shane and Andrew were working out of Shane's uh, Andrew Lounge in Plumstead. So I moved in to Andrew's Lounge in Plumstead with my one employee, and that was pretty much it. Like that was Worldwide Creative for the next year and a half. And interestingly, wow. the the next six months after Andrew took the role of bookkeeper from away from me we i think in like you know pro writer in comparison in relative terms worldwide creative worldwide creative had without doubt the fastest growth curve that we've ever experienced that six months basically wow. freed me up to do i mean what i'm good at is very relational so i'm good at like connecting with people i went out and i, I basically made a ton of sales brought it back in. And within that six months, we got like, I mean, we were so deep in the red. We were probably, I mean, maybe a few hundred thousand in the red. Wow. We, we got to being in the black to be able to pay ourselves better salaries, pay Shane and Andrew like proper salaries and, and to put us on the map. I mean, from that, mm. we then got a ton of clients. We got, you know, we had, as you, I think you know the story with Ferrari, we got the city of Cape Town, we got Democratic Alliance, we got TFG, Hyundai, Mixed Telematics, Apple, you know, all these dominoes started to fall from those six mm. months onwards. And we, we became a, a, you know, a significant agency from all of that. Wow. There's so much in there that is interesting to me about your story. But first, I want to highlight that for those of you who don't know, Andrew and Shane went on to found yes. Yuppie Chef that exited many years later for 460 million rand to Mr. Price. So two of them clearly knew what the fuck they were doing. And, <laughs> and one didn't. Were, yeah, the two of them had a good plan. Like they knew how to build businesses. And that kind of sparks my first question because I think you've teed this up beautifully and explained everything really usefully to somebody who's thinking of starting their own business. My first question is, what do you think the difference was between Andrew and Fred at that moment? Because you're roughly the same age, you're roughly the same stage in your businesses. He's basically running the same business as you, just a consultancy that does tech instead of a consultancy that does ads. But he had the idea to use QuickBooks and understand his basic cash flow management. And I highlight this because I think you and I, with all the entrepreneurs you've interviewed and I've spoken to and experienced ourselves, we both fundamentally understand that cash flow dictates the success of a business, like hands down. And it's the story you've just told is yeah. if you can get your cash flow right, everything else is easier. So why did he understand that? And I know this is philosophical. You don't. You might not have a concrete idea, but maybe speak to why you didn't understand that at that point, and he did. Sure. I mean, that's a great question, and and I think there's a few nuances to the answer. I think mm. first nuance is that Andrew Smith and Shane Dryden are just two of geniuses. The, I mean, they're just two of the most <laughs> gifted individuals in their yeah. in their like their domain, right? So 
I mean, Shane is this really deep thinking, creative individual. He comes up with just the most extraordinary insights. And he's got this, this knack for branding that is, is, you know, it's really, I mean, almost unparalleled in the South African business, business ecosystem. And then Andrew is just a, I mean, like the only way you can describe him is like a genuinely smart mofo. Like the guy, he, he has that gift of being able to take really complex topic or challenge and simplify it and hand it back to you in a like little gift wrapped kind of you know nugget mm. that you can take away with you and and i mean you know as you know they're two of my best friends to this day and i i love them deeply as brothers so it's part of what you're saying that andrew's he's an extraordinary he's an extraordinary individual when it comes yeah. to challenging topics so if you give okay. andrew something that's really complex and tangled like a, i mean our our finances at that stage was like a bird's nest it needed to be kind of mm. unwoven and put back in a neat little basket and that that's what he did he was just mm. he was just really good and i think you, you know the biggest lesson for me out of that and something that i still to this day have has a as a mantra is do what you're good at and delegate the rest right it's it it's right. stuck with me for so long and i didn't know that so the difference to your question for me was that you know, I, I, I mean, I'm like I know I'm confident enough to know that I'm a fairly smart dude. But the the challenge with that, and most entrepreneurs are, by the way, and this is something that I have deep experience with with the community that I I serve at the moment, is that there's so many smart individuals. The trap with that is that if you're a smart woman or man and you're entering into a business you can do a lot of the functions within that business. And sometimes you have to, because that's the nature of starting a business. But the, 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 the reality of that, and it's well covered in a book like The E-Myth, for example, by Michael Gerber, which is just, it's required reading for any, any aspiring entrepreneur. But, you know, the fact of the matter is when you put the mantle of entrepreneur, on, you're not just replacing your job for, you know, business owner. You're replacing your job for like seven jobs. You know, you're the HR person, you're the, the admin person, you're the marketing person, the brand sales and so on and so forth. And so the, the, the trick is to very quickly start to allocate those roles to other people so that you can work on the business and not in the business, right? And so, you, you know, it's a recipe for burnout if you don't. And, and it's a severe strain on your cash flow because, you know, you just don't do things. And particularly yeah. as I learned in, in terms of your your financial health, you know, the, the, it's, the maintenance. It's there. impressive how closely aligned, aligned our brains are because the, the next question that I'd written down to ask you on this exact front was there is a movement in the tech or in the startup space for entrepreneurs to be what I like to call expert generalists. And it's what I consider myself, right? That T-shaped person where you're a jack of all trades, but a master of one thing. And a lot of first-time founders don't know what they're a master of one thing at. So they do everything because that's where you derive your self-worth. I can do everything. I'm the startup founder. I can do it better than everyone. But there's a movement towards this idea that you should strengthen your strengths and not strengthen your weaknesses. Where do you sit on this? Because is it better to be a well-rounded startup founder or a, an expert like I can't even think of any, like Bill Gates or Steve Wozniak. Wozniak was not an expert generalist. He was a tech person and he needed a generalist to expand his skills. So like, where do you, where did you sit at this time? You were trying to be the everything entrepreneur, but that wasn't working. I think where I would go with that is that you generally are, are you, you need to understand the various components of your business. You don't need to be an expert at those components. However, I, yeah. I do feel that you, you do have to become an expert on the, the offering that, you are, that, that, that you're providing, right? So if you, you know, whatever your offering is, whether it's a service or a product, it, you've got to really know what it is. And you have to kind of understand what problem it's, it's solving. And you really need to have domain expertise in that problem. You have to understand mm. the nuances of the problem. You have to understand the backstory. You need to understand the trajectory where it's going. And you really do need to have a deep well of knowledge about the people who are embroiled in that problem. And that's effectively mm. what makes a good entrepreneur, right? So, 
you know, and you see examples of that across the board. And it just so happens that some of them might be like, I mean, maybe the Collison brothers or someone like they, they're just really good at a certain thing. You know, like they might be very technically adept, but, you know, that just so happens to be their backstory. But the, the reality mm -hmm. is if you speak to people who are super successful, generally they'll be able to give you a good understanding of the problem that they're solving. And that's really what you have to evolve into. I would. Such a great answer. So. Uh, I, yeah, I think that the way you phrase that is so important for me to reiterate so that people understand that you're not saying ignore those sides of your no. business and hire people who know no. things that you don't know. Yeah. You're saying learn everything. Yeah. And this is kind of where the expert generalist part of this conversation is, is understand everything about your business, but focus on the things you are an expert at and allow people to do the things in that business that you're not good at, but know what they're doing. You can't be an ignorant founder and go, yeah. oh, the finances aren't for me. Yeah. If you cannot read a balance sheet, you're not knowing your business. Yeah. Like you're not deeply entrenched enough in your business. Yeah. And actually, it's an interesting conversation. I, I coach uh, for Techstars. I'm, I'm one of their coaches and I'm yeah. coaching in the Toronto, if, if you're a local, the Toronto group at the moment. And last night I spoke to a company that is trying to do an eyewear startup, but they want to start a retail store, a physical store. And I was like, hold on. Are you an expert at eyewear? Yes. Are you an expert at stores? No. Well, then why the fuck would you open a store? You think that this is easy, but it's not. Shop fitters, tiles, paint colors, fire hydrants. You haven't sold $100,000 worth of eyewear and you want to be an expert at a shop. So pick which is the hill you want to die on. And I think you've, you've highlighted this so well that if you're a startup founder, you have to pick the problem you want to solve and that's the hill you want to die on. Everything else, find great people and let them do their jobs. Yeah, 100%. I agree with that. And I think even further, once you start getting good at something and you actually you begin to get that traction in your business, the trap that you're inevitably going to face is the additive trap. So you're going to get so many opportunities to do things that, you know, are, are you know, a natural overflow of success. So people will be like, mm. you know, hey, we want to partner with you on this project and this project. And there's, you know, this amount of money in that and this. But the reality is that, you know, unless it's truly aligned with your mission, it's going to distract you. And, and it, it happens so often. I mean... You know, it's one of the, it's, it's the lesson that many of us and probably many of the people listening to this know. I mean, they've mostly, most likely watched the Steve Jobs commencement speech where he talks about no is the most important word. Like, you know, and saying no to stuff is the, yeah. the challenges. It's really bloody hard, you know, particularly if you've got someone with deep pockets and they want to partner with you and all that stuff, but it's completely deviating from your mission. Mm. it becomes really the difficult. part of the part of that that i like that you've said is that you've highlighted that when you are finding some traction and success the key thing for you to acknowledge is you've got that because you're focusing you've got that because you're saying no to things but when you're successful you're like oh i'm doing well i can do more things and add and layer and feature and distract myself and i've said on this show multiple times that my career the first 15 years of my career were defined by my inability to say no to opportunities that weren't real like, I'm very clear on that now. Oh, I've got this business. Let me go and do that. Oh, I've got this client. Let me go and get three more. The, f the lack of focus is just wild. Yeah. I spend most of my time mentoring people now saying, why do you have more features? Features don't solve sales problems. Yeah. And the, the, like, the, the problem is our personality, yeah? Because we, yeah. as entrepreneurs, again, I, I find, I mean, obviously generalizing, but most entrepreneurs have a fairly kind of creative bent and they are, you know, somewhat ADD and they, they're mostly curious about the world in general. And so, yeah. you know, you start to just bring on all these, you know, it becomes so attractive to just do more stuff. And, and it, it's, you just, it's a recipe for burnout. You just start spreading yourself yeah. thin. And what, what inevitably happens is that your product, your core product, becomes it, it's it starts to to lose its quality and it and it's it's not as as strong as as it could be because you're just not focusing on it right? yeah and then your clients suffer and then they cancel and then you have an average product talking to the wrong client with no cash flow yeah exactly i have yeah i mean we we've had just a quick story we had a personal experience mm. with heavy chef and that 
in the beginning, it started, I mean, we started really trading in 2018, right? So we, we our, our aim was always, I mean, I wrote the business plan for Heavy Shift in like 2009. The, 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 the plan was always to have a learning management system and an, a, an app, right? Which you could then tailor very hyper-specific learning to your own entrepreneurial journey. But early on, I'm actually, I'm not going to mention the name of the, the company, but we were approached by a, a a big company in South Africa who offered us a ton of money to essentially run events using our community as the kind of, you know, the, the, the exchange in a way, like that attention on their brand as you know, champions of entrepreneurs and so on. And it basically, it was very lucrative for us in early days, but we lost, I mean, we lost like a year and a half in terms of focus because we became an events company. And the challenge is you could argue that, right, you made money and you, you know, there was a, it was a good way of raising funds for, for the company. But the trap actually resulted in that we lost focus. And, and ultimately, mm. we, our brand became known for the wrong thing. We became known and still actually to a degree are known as, hey, you're the events guys, right? Because it just kind of exploded. And, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of ancillary it's, challenges that occur when you lose focus yeah. that you, you can't. Yeah, it's an important point. You can't there's, no, there's different kinds of money and different kinds of clients and different kinds of success. And you have to pick the one that's right for your business model and your business. Not all money is made equal. Not all investment is made equal. There are bad partners and good partners. And it's your inability as a founder to say no that puts you in a position where you're in trouble. So, uh, more practically, I want to ask you about this cash flow problem that you were experiencing. You're making it sound as if it was simply a software problem, but you and I both know that that isn't how cash flow works. So, where was the money going? Why were you in debt at this point? Like, how was this money just disappearing? You, you mean in, in back in the early days of of World Wide Yeah, Red. when Shane, when Andrew when Andrew came in and was like, "Hold on, everything is in the red." Where was the money? Because, you know, like you, you had clients and the money was just going away. Where was it going? I mean, basically, it was going towards things that we shouldn't have paid for. So in, in other words, we had an expensive lease for a fancy office. We had employees that uh, we didn't, it, we couldn't afford. And I mean, frankly, you know, my own family and my own upkeep and you know, just trying to just make sure that my kids were fed and and that, you know, my then wife was not going to murder me when I came in through the door because I didn't have the shopping. And it was, I mean, that sort of early stage entrepreneurship, as many people understand, it's so long ago, but it, it's, it still sticks with me. You know, you get a form of PTSD. I've reframed it to PTSD. It's Post post trauma growth syndrome. <laughs> so I've I've okay. reframed it, but I have a form of PTSD from there. Where yeah. still to this day, like I, I'm, it, it's like I, I I'm wary of spending money on things, you know, and I, I, mm. I, because of that time where you you it, you're so on the wire, and even I mean I have the money now, but it's like, you know, I, I don't want to spend it, like because you just yeah. just don't want to ever go through that again. It, it's so bad. It's um, a really interesting problem that you find yourself in in that role. And I mean, I, I, was, I wasn't going to touch on this, but I do think it's an interesting transitionary conversation that you go from founders are generally scarcity based. I've got this thing. I've got a very finite amount of money. I have to do the most I can with this amount of money. And everybody's trying to take it from me mm. to hold on. I'm profitable. And now we need to grow. Those are two different founders, two different leaders, two different CEOs building two different businesses. And that shift is a really dramatic and difficult one for most people to manage if they've never done it. And this kind of ties into a question that I was going to ask you around, how do you know when you must stop doing everything? Because that leads to that abundancy versus scarcity, ego-driven, building a startup, you're the CEO, you're the founder, you can do everything to, yeah. hold on, I can afford to hire people, I can afford a big office, I can afford to spend money when maybe you shouldn't, or maybe you should. So how do you balance that? I don't know. Yeah, it's a great question. Again, I think, so just for some context, I mean, one of the things that Heavy Chef does is we have a foundation which does research, right? So some of the research that's come out of the foundation, we research all the entrepreneurs within our community, as well as our partner communities. 
it's we've seen some extraordinary paradoxes come through. One of them is that you know many entrepreneurs are they they they're loners. So even if you're in partnership, you do work on your own. So you basically work, you know, through the night. You you will get fixated on a problem and you will you'll break it down and you, you can go through weeks like that, right? So you get into this kind of like whole mentality mentality where you're in a hole and you're in a bubble, you're kind of doing the work. And and the reality is, uh, so in fact, we have the stats, I think it's 60% of entrepreneurs actually learn by themselves. They do stuff, they solve problems on their own, right? Even when they have business partners. But we 64% of them want to be to have mentors, to have peers, and so on and so forth. And what we know is that there's this kind of this tension between those two facts that mm-hmm. it actually the answer to a question lies there in that we entrepreneurs, we cannot do it alone. We have to have perspective from people around us. So if you're struggling with that, you know the you know the mindset of like hey like and you and it is quite scary because suddenly you've got money and it's like you you don't want to go back there when you were existentially almost you know wiped off the face of the planet but you also know that there is a responsibility to yourself to your stakeholders to whoever to you know to grow the business and that that tension it it actually requires perspective from people that you trust around you so that you can then gauge the answer in in a much more considered format because emotions do get the better of you. Yeah. Another, just another paradox that I've been chatting about quite a lot recently is that there is mentally quite a fascinating paradox in terms of character traits within entrepreneurs that has come out of all the interviews as you know we've done thousands of these interviews at heavy chef and when and this, again this is a bit of a generalization and this is anecdotal by the way we don't have the stats to this but my business partner louis is diving into this so we are going to have some something a bit more measured uh, out of this but this is the anecdotal insight that i can provide is that Generally speaking, many of the entrepreneurs that we've interviewed have this fascinating uh, tension between a high self-confidence, a high, sorry, high self-belief, right, but a low self-esteem, which is strange, wow. right? Because you would think that they would correlate. And, and in management in corporates, you'd find that people have like a sort of high, you know, self self-esteem and a and a pretty high self-belief entrepreneurs not so much and they have this low self-esteem and generally it starts to present itself in the form of some sort of wound that they take on board right Mm. but during the course of their formative years they discover that they have the intellect and the creativity to be able to problem solve with ease so they understand Mm. they can do stuff they can you know, they can coast through matric exams, for example, or their A-levels or whatever, you know, and they can basically just, they can kind of figure out how to get through life and they, they, and they enjoy certain creative pursuits and they're good at it. But there's something driving them from underneath, which is this wound, this sort of need to, to you know, to be seen or to be healed or so on. Wow. And again, it's anecdotal. It's something that I've noticed. And it's very much around the, the sort of origin stories of people's, you know, their, their upbringing and, and so on. I mean, I can, I can layer on some of my own perspectives on that because that resonates with me deeply that I, I think you phrased it high self-belief but low self-confidence. Is that, did I get high that right? self High self-belief and low self-esteem. Low self-esteem. So to me, that strikes of imposter syndrome. That's basically the tagline for imposter syndrome yeah. is, and, and I think you've heard me say this in the past, that I kind of prefer to refer to it as imposter phenomenon, mm-hmm. because for people who are smart enough and adaptable enough, that feeling of being insecure and not knowing what the fuck you're doing drives you to, on your own, learn more 
to become more competent, to raise your self-belief and push your self-esteem higher. So I feel like there's this flywheel of self-belief, self-esteem, education, knowledge that pushes the best entrepreneurs to feed off that feeling. So I I think I just want to quickly also jump back to your answer and highlights the, the depth of that answer. I think most people might not notice that my question was, how do you know when to give away some of the work and when to not just take it on yourself? And your answer was really smart. Look at other people, listen to what they're telling you and observe the advice they can give you and then take it on and figure it out for yourself. But there are people who have done this before. You are not actually alone, even though you want to be, you're not. And if you can pool the right amount of knowledge around you, the chances are you can make more informed decisions. And, and interestingly, you know, those character traits of, of, of high self-belief and low self-esteem, can it, it can translate into some pretty disadvantageous behaviors within running a company. Because ultimately, yeah. you know, the, the telltale signs will be like, oh, it takes too much time to delegate, I'll just do it myself, right? Or, you know, I don't really want to burden that person with doing this thing because I know that I can do it or whatever it is, right? And so... Ultimately, you become, I mean, you may be a great creative entrepreneur, but then you become a ship manager. And unfortunately, like we kind of have to understand what management, the principles of management are when you, you, you're starting and scaling a business. Eventually, obviously, you get yeah. to the point where you have those people in place, which is really the, the goal. I think the good news is that it is treatable and the, the way to treat it is really around around self-awareness. You know, just lean into mm. yourself, have the people around you, have those blunt, vulnerable conversations with trusted individuals, preferably not your your husband or your wife, <laughs> because yeah. you know that, that becomes very difficult and it, it starts to blur lines. I mean, if you have a really great relationship, maybe, but but have some people who are in the trenches as well, who are not in your company, but, you know, if it's a business partner, then sure. But like, you know, have a, a, a circle of folks that you can go to where there's, there's a safe place to really get that perspective because it's, it's just, it's, it's critical. I think that that skill, uh, the soft skill of self-awareness is uh, for me unequivocally one of the hallmarks of the best entrepreneurs I know. However, it took me... 10 years, 15 years, multiple failures, burnouts, hospitalization from kidney stones and all these things to realize that I should be fucking self-aware. So my question is, how do you start the journey of self-awareness? I, I mean, I think it's, it is very much around asking the question, who around me do I trust enough to be vulnerable and blunt and really open up like to the real truth the the thing around self-esteem which again another sort of telltale sign within yourself if you have to ask questions of yourself is like am i am i being truthful to the people around me about the real mess Mm. that this company is in you know do Mm. people really know the truth like because i'm projecting the whole time and by the way like i have a, a belief that one of the 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 kind of the causative stimuli for anxiety is is the the you know this true self false self divide so if you as an entrepreneur if you're projecting you know this this hey i'm a successful entrepreneur whatever it is but the truth is that there's a friggin mess back home um that the further that divide goes you know the the more fractured the more fractured you're going to feel and that leads to anxiety right and that's great that's so great fred yeah so, so great. The the call that I would ask my listeners and viewers to consider is, are you being the most truthful version of yourself yeah. in every aspect of your life? Because yeah. the, through the entrepreneurs that I coach and mentor, they've got happy-go-lucky uh, entrepreneur at work and devious asshole at home or vice versa. Or, you know, I'm unhealthy, unhappy, but at work, I'm this brilliant founder who meditates, quote unquote, every day, and you never do. That divide is so wide. Fred, it's such an astute observation that anxiety exists between the truth and the lie that you tell yourself and other people. And I also just want to encourage people just to have compassion for themselves because you're, I mean, this this is just so 
prevalent amongst entrepreneurs. Yeah. So if you're feeling that, if you're feeling that divide, if you're feeling that sort of, you know, self-confidence, low self-esteem, it's you're you're amongst friends here because we've all felt that. And I think the 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 real encouragement would be to at least start identifying it, being aware of it. But then I think in yeah. terms of a practical step is look for people that you trust, that are, are people that you respect. And that, mm. that respect is really important. You, you, you want to mm. take perspective from people that, that are, in our terms, heavy chefs that, that have a yeah. little bit of domain expertise around the, you know, the journey of being an entrepreneur. And then be really courageous around telling the mm. truth. Because, you know, the truth really does set you free. And, and it, it starts to, it, Andrew Smith, he said something to me a while ago, like, and this is, I mean, a, a decade and a half ago. He said, look, you, when you're in that position of vulnerability, one of the strongest things you can do is poke the dragon in the eye. And I love that because it's like turning around to this dragon that's behind you. It's just like the truth is the way you do that. Tell the truth. And all of a sudden, this, you know, this dragon it loses its power. Yeah. Fred, I have absolutely loved the intersection of philosophy and practicality in our conversation because for me, it's really important. I think we spend too much time as entrepreneurs in the trenches building and trying to get ourselves out of the shitstorm that we find ourselves in instead of thinking, well, why am I in this shitstorm? How did I end up here? What can I contribute to the solution? So I think this episode has been one of my favorites just in terms of pushing me and listeners to think differently about the problems you're in and why you're in them and how to get yourself out there so thank you and in closing please tell people where they can find you where they can follow you where they can buy from you and anything else you want them to know yeah so the first thing i, I would say is go to heavychef.com and uh, you can subscribe to the newsletter which i write every wednesday and my good friend and brother louis who's also my business partner writes on friday he writes a research mailer on friday and i write a, a more sort of fred style uh, email on Wednesday. You can also sign up if you'd like to the actual Heavy Chef platform. That's all, it's very clear on the platform. And then you can find me at fredroad.com and all my, my details are, are there. Yeah, I man, will link to all of that in the show notes. Cool. Thank you. I, I mean, Nick, you're a great interviewer and and I love the show. I love the fact that there's this intersection of like practicality and therapy, you know, and I think it's, it's needed, particularly at this juncture of human history thank you fred and as an, a good and old friend of mine i'm always so happy to say that for you your entrepreneurial journey in heavy chef it's not over yeah, big time thank you so appreciate it <laughs>